Сиви. I'm so grateful for this time that I've had with all of you, uh, visiting with some of you during the week and then seeing uh, all of you uh, Sunday after Sunday. So uh, it's been a real treat. Uh, so far, a great high point of our summer to be with my daughter and granddaughter and uh, my wife and hanging out with you guys. It's all downhill after this, so whatever. <laughs> so in our uh, bulletin, you'll see are the same passage we read last week, and I remind you that this comes on the heels of Paul's talking about our adoption as children and how the Spirit enables us to cry out, believing that God is our Father. We use the Hebrew word for dad, right? We're made intimate with God through the work of the Holy Spirit. But then he rushes into, you might say, the point of it that if we're children, then we're heirs. If we're heirs, we're co-heirs with Christ and we'll be glorified with him one day. The whole point of that passage is to get to this glorification. And that's what the next section is about. In fact, verse 18 starts with uh, the word glory. And the section ends in verse 30, where Paul says those he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. The whole section from beginning to end is about glory. In fact, those are the bookends of this section. So this passage is about the coming glory that we will experience as heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And since this is one of the great climaxes or the great climax in Romans 8, it underscores how important the coming glory is for us to think about. And that's why I'm harping on it week after week uh, to try to drive it into our, our heads, my own as well as yours. So let's read then just verses 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits for the eager longing, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, uh, bless us. Open up your word to us, Lord, that we may follow you, that we may trust you, that we may rejoice in you, that we may be further purified in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. You know, the word glory is probably not our daily bread, actually, our part of our daily thinking. But as I've already mentioned, it really is the primary part of our adoption. Uh, 
it's the, the, the talk about adoption is filled with the coming glory. And this odd word in verse 23 that it's not until we are redeemed our bodies in that final day, it's not until we achieve that glory that you can fully say our adoption is here. So that's how important it is. Your adoption is not complete, it's not real, it's not got its final purpose until you have your new body in Christ Jesus. That's how important this is. And so, given that great thing coming, even creation longs for it, even creation groans for it, because our final glory is creation's freedom. When we can become those glorious, perfect human beings made powerful, being made like Christ, then and only then will we be able to care for creation and lead creation as it was meant to be led. And so creation is tapping its foot, you know, waiting for that day, craning its neck, waiting for that day when we will be glorified because then creation itself will be set free. So it's easy to see our outline here. Creation groans for its release. We groan for our adoption. First then, creation groans for its release. When it says that the whole creation, verse 22 and verses, uh, verses 22 and 23, what we're dealing with here, <clears throat> when it says the whole creation has been groaning together, it means every part of creation, all the various parts of creation are groaning together. That's what he intends here. Philip's translation is the creation is engaged in a symphony of size, a symphony of size. One commentator says the whole cosmos is in a fractured chorus, this broken chorus aching for that. And really every day in every death, in all sickness, in every accident, tornado, fire, hurricane, whatever, in every evil one human being does against another, that's the groaning of creation. It's personified as though creation itself is just groaning because of the evil, groaning that it, it itself is engaged in the destruction of human beings. That's not what it was meant for. That's not the futility, that's the futility of creation. And so you might even think of this, say a mosquito bites you, you know, creation would have this to say, because it says there in uh, verse 20, verse 20, creation was, was subjected, not willingly. It wasn't their idea, it wasn't creation's idea. And so a mosquito bites you and, mosquito, and, and then uh, creation would say to you, I don't like it any more than you did. I didn't choose this, you did, right? That would be creation. It was subjected unwillingly, but it, it's involved and it's groaning over what's happening, waiting for our glory, which means we will finally be holy, we'll finally be good. These things will mark our humanity in that last day, and we will be able to lead this creation. But notice it says that 
They are birth pangs in the pains of childbirth. And that picks up from what verse 20 says. It was subjected to futility in hope. So the hope of childbirth, right? The hope of the pain and suffering. The whole structural design of creation uh, was from the beginning to have hope. Um, this ultimate deliverance stamped on creation's bondage from the beginning was this will not last. This is not the final word. Hope set up shop the day God pronounced curse on creation. Curse has never been there without hope, not for a second. And so the curse is merely the staging point for hope. And the ultimate destiny of creation, as is obvious in this passage, is not annihilation, but transformation. And American Christianity has not gotten that very well at all. It's not annihilation, it's transformation. These are not death pangs, they're birth pangs. New life is coming, right? A new creation is, is coming. A woman suffers the pains of childbirth in the hope of a child. Even the fire that's mentioned in 2 Peter 3, speaking of the elements being burned up, it's what we call apocalyptic language, which is highly metaphorical. But even in that passage, you see how much he's talking about the evil that is in this world. And he compares it with the flood. What happened with the flood? Was the earth completely destroyed and gone after that? No, it was renewed. Evil was removed from the earth. That's the analogy that when fire comes, it's a purification of the earth. Put it this way, the evil are evicted from the property. The earth is renewed and we have a new heavens and new earth as that passage says. So Romans 8 can't have any, would not make any sense at all if the earth is eager for its own annihilation. See how, you know, the earth just can't wait till it's gone. That's like Eastern thought. If you're a Hindu, that makes good sense. Yes. You know, we don't like the material things. We want to be, we want to escape material things and just be spirits all made one in the last nirvana. But we're not Eastern. We're biblical, right? We love the creation. God loves the creation. He likes our bodies. He's going to renew our bodies. They're not prisons from which we escape. So Matthew 5, 4 says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Oh, oops, it burned up. You lost your inheritance. You invested in Blockbuster, didn't you? You put your whole inheritance in Blockbuster. Well, same thing with the earth. You're counting on the earth to, to inherit it. Eh, it's going to be burned up in the last day. It's gone. Eh, sorry. You put your hope in the wrong thing. You see how nothing in Scripture points in that direction. It's the final existence of a renewed earth. Brothers and sisters, that's your inheritance, right? That's part of the glory that we will enjoy. Christ is our inheritance and the fact that we will enjoy Him in the midst of the new heavens and the earth is the glory that is to come. So creation waits for its release, not its destruction. And then secondly, we 
grown awaiting our adoption. Oh, by the way, before I leave this, when you use creation to the glory of God and you enjoy God in creation and you trust God and fellowship with God in creation, and you understand I'm not just saying out in creation, I'm talking about anything and everything you do, right? All of life here, then you are pushing back the curse and you are already tasting of the new heavens and the new earth. You see? You're already tasting of that life to come when we will perfectly fellowship with God as we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. We are those, you might say, pockets of refreshment for creation that, hey, these guys are beginning to get it. They're enjoying us, this, to the glory of God. And they're not making an idol of it. They're not denying it. They are enjoying it to God's glory. So, we groan awaiting our adoption. <clears throat> the first fruits of the Spirit. What we enjoy of the Spirit now is a taste of what we will have in the final day. There's this great orchard with this new variety of orange. Uh, a few trees are harvested. You taste the fruit. It's amazing, tart, sweet, bursting in your mouth. That tells you what this harvest is going to be, right? You taste the first orange and you know what's coming. And as we taste the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit transforms our life, as the Holy Spirit enables us to call on God, Abba, Father, all of these things are the first fruits of what He will bring us in the final day. Just little inklings of the beauty and glory that is to come. The harvest is already in motion, and we're getting to taste the present fruits. All of your life in Christ is begun and sustained by the Holy Spirit. All your experience of the Spirit's influence is a foretaste of the final glory. And really, that's why we're groaning so much, because we've already begun to taste it. We've already begun to taste those moments when you're praying and you're overwhelmed with the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. That's the first fruits of the Spirit. You're going to be overwhelmed beyond the wazoo in heaven over, excuse me, the, the beauty of God's love for you. When you taste fellowship with a, a brother or sister, y'all share, you know, critical, intimate things that you're struggling with and you pray and you just can't believe the time that you had. That's just a foretaste of the spirit of the beauties that await us in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> so the first fruits of the spirit here. But then he says this fascinating, really for me, when I first saw it, not only puzzling, but disturbing statement, we await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Because of course, I'm already adopted. That's a vital part of my uh, self-understanding is that I'm adopted. But now Paul says we're waiting for that adoption. And the redemption of our bodies is just another way to describe the resurrection in the last day, the resurrection of our bodies, the final resurrection. Now, 
Paul says in Philippians 3.21, I think we've, we've talked about this, that when Jesus comes, He will conform our humble bodies to be conformed to His glorious body. Okay? That's, that's the point of final resurrection. Just like He was resurrected into this new, powerful, immortal body, that was just the first of what's to come. He was the first fruits. We are going to be, quote, harvested just like that. We will receive those bodies. He suffered for our sin. He bore away our punishment for sin. He suffered death in our place and was raised for the dead from the dead for us, just like he died for us. He was raised for us. He didn't need resurrection. He's God. He became man to die for us and then to be raised for us to bring us into that resurrection because we were going to die one day. And so, so that even if we have already died, we will not remain dead, but we will be resurrected just like him. And in that day, and I love this phrase from one commentator, we will go from mortal followers of Jesus to immortal companions of Jesus. That's a great phrase. Immortal companions of Jesus. Glorious. And that was the plan from the beginning. And you catch a flavor of that plan. Of course, what we quoted, he predestined us and called us and justified us so that it, to be finally glorified. But listen to this in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, to this he called you through our gospel. Oh, what, is, what did he call us for? What did he call us for in the gospel? Paul says, to this he called you so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he called you. And that sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? That you might obtain the very glory of Jesus Christ. Of course, he's not talking about the glory of his deity, but he is talking about the glory of his humanity. His, whatever he became as a human being and his glory and his inheritance, he graciously, astoundingly shares it with us so that we will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The words to describe what's coming go off the chart. I could not imagine them. I could not dream this up. And they seem still to be beyond, they are beyond comprehension of what it means. But here, Paul calls this redemption of the body, this final resurrection, our adoption. And that simply means then is the full manifestation of our adoption, the full realization of what adoption means. It shows the importance of this bodily resurrection, that our adoption is not completed until then. And this reminds us that our bodies are just as much us as our spirits. And American Christianity has become Gnostic. We've become Eastern or had become Eastern in our thinking in this regard that the spirit is the real me. 
Now, I think I may have said this before, but it was 25 years ago. You've forgotten it, so I can say it again. <clears throat> so, I've been to funerals like this, funerals in which the resurrection of all things, the resurrection, physical resurrection, is never talked about. It's just, you die, you go to heaven, it's done, you're there, it's over, good, right? That's, that's, that's Christianity, so we're to, to, to learn. And usually it's put in like this from a, a southerner, because the, the casket will be right in front of the pulpit, right? And our preacher will say, Bill, that's Bill, by the way, <laughs> They couldn't understand me in Texas when I said that. Oh, I said in Texas, for the first uh, few months, I said, Jesus asked for one of his disciples to go get a Cohen out of a fish's mouth. And they were like, what's a Cohen? You know, it's a Jewish guy in New York, don't you know? I mean, that's C-O-H-E-N, that's how you spell it. No, it's coin, it's coin, you know. So I've tried to learn to say coin. Instead of what it should be said, you know, Cohen. But anyway, so here's the preacher. He says, Baal is no longer with us. Baal is with Jesus. Now, that's true as far as it goes, but that's Bill down there, okay? Really, that is Bill, and that's the dead part of Bill. That's not good for, for Bill to be dead, right? Never forget that. That body needs to come out of the grave. That body needs to be resurrected, because that is Bill. That's why in heaven, even in the midst of celebration and glory, not in sadness, but with expectation, like the expectation of a, of a vacation coming up. In Revelation 6.10, it says the saints are saying, how long? How long will it be? How long? They're not sad. You can't be in the presence of Jesus. You're celebrating. You're glorious. You're sinless even then. But you're still saying, how long? How long? Because adoption is not complete when you go to heaven after you die. It's only complete in the final day when your body is resurrected. Okay? That's the completion of your adoption. I tell you, I, <laughs> I didn't get that growing up in my version of Christianity. And it took me quite a while to hammer it in my hard head that this, that God loves his creation. He loves his creation. He's restoring his creation. That simple thing. So, in application, <clears throat> to close, clo uh, closing won't take but 40, 40 minutes, tops. Okay. Um, you know when a minister says, I'm almost through, and you, or, or we've heard people say, make a long story short, I wish you would, you know, I wish it would, but it won't, you know, because this is getting longer and longer. <laughs> you know, if you're telling one story and you say, make a long story short, and you say that five times, it's not a long story short, I'm telling you. <clears throat> anyway, first application, and I'm just underscoring this, is that hope is not heaven, simply. Hope in New Testament is not getting to heaven when you die. Peter writes this, 1 Peter 1, set your hope fully on the grace, 
could be this, that you will receive when you die. Wouldn't that seem to make sense? Set your heart fully on the grace that you will get when you die. No. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where you fix your hope on that day. Or Paul, Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope when we die and go to be with Jesus in heaven. No. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love this phrase in Peter, on the grace to be brought to you at the coming of Christ Jesus. This is further grace and kindness and mercy, undeserved grace is showing up in that last day. This is ultimate, transcendent, towering grace, earth transforming, literally crowning grace, because you will be crowned as kings and queens. But grace is going to show up in that last day. Fix your hope on that day. Fix your hope on that last day. And this defines the rest of your life until that day. That's why I love the title and the book of John Piper, Future Grace. Because he, he says we tend to work like this. God gives us something, now we need to pay him back. God gives us something, now we need to pay him back. That's why he doesn't particularly like, oh, to grace how great a debtor I'm constrained to be. Although I think that has some weight. But his point is, if we think every day is paying him back for grace, we've got it wrong. No, I need grace today. I need grace tomorrow morning at 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. I need grace every minute of my life. I need future grace just to continue to flow to me. And when you know that grace is the final word, it's coming big time in the end, you can think, okay, well, everything's grace. Everything's grace until that final day. And John actually says in 1 John 3, when you fix your hope upon that coming and that transformation that's going to happen to you, he says, it purifies you. You want to undermine your anger, undermine your lust, undermine your jealousies and envies and envying or any other sin or any other idol, fix your hope. You'd be surprised how much you can let go of your life, how much transformation occurs. John promises, he who has his hope fixed upon this day purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. That's how important this is. This is not a little extra nice thing you do every day. It's vital to your sanctification. We don't, I don't, we don't get how much emphasis there is in the New Testament on this. So, <clears throat> think how pointless it would be to say that the creation was subjected in hope that the sons of God would one day die and go to heaven. What would that do for creation? So creation just waiting for the day when God's people would just get out of here. That's not what it says, is it? 
Very opposite of what it says. That's not creation needs. Creation uh, needs the full restoration of the new humanity. Now, when they say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Now, if you're talking about this sinful world, yes. If you're talking about the world opposed to God, yes. But if you're talking about creation, I'm just passing through, it might better be to say with the saints in heaven, when they're saying how long and they're going to be brought with Jesus to restore the earth, you might get to heaven and say, just passing through. <laughs> just passing through because Jesus is going to bring us all back and he's going to renew the earth and heaven and earth will be one. You know, the hymn, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away in the morning when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Beautiful song. And I like the thought of it, especially as you're thinking about escaping the horrible pains and sufferings and sin of this world. So it's, it's got merit. It's really good. I'm not downing it. I'm just saying maybe that's not everything. To be with Christ is amazing, as Paul says in Philippians 1. Far better. We long to be with Jesus. It's good to be with Jesus. I'm not downplaying that at all. But it's interesting, after Paul had left Thessalonica, and he was only there three weeks, and the believers had a lot of questions. And one of their questions was this. They looked forward to the transformation of their bodies when Jesus would come again, but they were worried about those who had already died. You know, like Martha and Mary, Jesus, I can understand, if you'd been here, you could have saved Lazarus, but he's already dead. Nothing we can do now. And that's kind of their thought. You know, like if Jesus comes, we can kind of see we've got our bodies and we can see them being changed. But what about those who died? No hope for them, is there? And so Paul says, no, he could have said this. No, they're fine. In fact, you'd think the believers were just saying, hey, great. I, my mother died. She's with Jesus. It's fine. She's safe. It's over. That's not what they were wondering about their mother. You get that? They're not sitting there saying, she made it. She's in heaven. She's safe. They're saying, oh, no. Oh, no. What's going to happen to her? Is, is she going to receive the transformation? How, how, what's going to happen with them? See her, do you see their concern? And Paul answers it. He says, not to worry. When those who've died are there with Jesus, spirits of righteous people made perfect, as Hebrews says, Jesus will bring them with him. Oh, oh, okay. That's good. That's good. And he says, they're going to be first in line. It's like Southwestern, A-line, B-line. They're the A-line, right? Which I think is so appropriate because if you've lost your body, you should be the first ones to get it back, right? And so, but then he says, we who are here, we then are transformed as well. So that's how, so he reassures them, far from missing out, your friends who've died, your relatives, they will be the first ones to receive their bodies, but you see the concern for bodily resurrection and that the fact that people have gone to heaven was not like, oh, it's over, it's safe. It's like, oh, no, wait, wait. 
They wanted to know what's going to happen to those who have died. Just two things to remind you uh, because of our time. Two things to remind you. Our enjoyment of this creation, therefore, and our responsibility in this creation. If this creation is going to be renewed and we're going to be the kings and queens of this new creation, when heaven and earth are made one, the new heavens and the new earth as described uh, several times in the New Testament, then it gives us a different relationship to creation even now. Because we, we realize all of this counts. This is not just going to leave one day. It used to be a holy thing for us to say, you know, there are only two things that last, people and the Word of God. Yeah, I know that sounds good, but that's not the whole truth. The creation is going to be here. God's certainly the toughest critic imaginable. And seven times in Genesis, he says the creation is good. And though this world's empty pleasures will pass away, a good line from a good hymn, define empty carefully. Empty means sinful pleasures, but not all pleasures, perhaps not all, most pleasures in this world are not sinful in themselves. They're just wonderful pleasures. And we don't label them different than God when he says, it's very good to eat a watermelon. Very good. It's good. It's good to kiss your wife or your babies. It's good to enjoy the breeze. It's good to enjoy a good piece of art or a good piece of music. These are good things that I've created for you. Now, if we idolize them, they become broken. We get bored with them. They ruin us if we try to draw life from them. But if we do it in order to enjoy God... Our responsibility is to find pleasure in our Father's world, right? To enjoy the things God has for us, to thank Him for them, to celebrate the goodness of creation, of work, of recreation, of the arts. Enjoy God in the midst of these things. And then secondly, our responsibility, because God is preeminent all things are important and nothing is to be dismissed. We can't brush aside the earthly life as batting cage and batting practice. And the real game is to come. The real game is here and now in everything you do every single day from washing the sink to going to work to making plans, every part of your life is imbued with the glory and presence of God. Why else would Paul say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, that's every minute of the day, do it to the glory of God. Colossians 3, whatever you do, whether you're talking or you're doing, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. And what's so glorious about this, you see, I get really upset. I had, I had people who joined our church in Fort Worth, part of a pretty large Bible church there. And he had gone to his pastor to ask him about something 
that he wanted to do a seminar for business people on how to be a Christian at work. And he was, first of all, told, well, we just don't do that, you know, because we, we're about the church and about the gospel and all this. And then he told him, you only work in order to give money to the church. That's the meaning of your work. I, I mean, I don't know if I've ever been madder than that. <laughs> Especially because you have a living because they're working and now you're demeaning their work. Ah! Excuse me. <laughs> that just, oh. You should be showing them that what you do is just as holy and important as what I do. Absolutely. You are called to your work. I'm called to my work. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. Everybody has a calling, not just the preacher. Oh, he got called. Yeah, well, we're all called. Okay, we're all doing God's work. I won't have a job in the new heavens and the new earth, right? I got to find something else to do. Because <laughs> we'll all know the Lord perfectly. <laughs> but... I believe all of our gifts and all of our skills, all our capacities will be brought to the full in that final day. But you see, that changes how you think about what you're doing now. That it's all holy. It's all good. There's no secular spiritual. It's all spiritual. And it really is exhilarating when you think every part of my day has significance, eternal significance in the presence of God. Amen. Yes. So, this, I think, is a critical part of our gospel message. And one of the ways that we can speak into a secular world is that God is the God who redeems all of us and all of creation. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us in Christ Jesus. We praise you that this mercy and grace given to us most gloriously in Christ dying for our sins, loving us when we were sinners, loving us when we were enemies, when we were weak, as Paul says in Romans 5, a love that transcends any understanding we could have of love, that love given to us, and then for Christ dying and then being raised and then being glorified and sharing with us Sinners, all that he is one. Oh Lord, thank you for love that, as Paul says, surpasses knowledge. May we rejoice in it. May we live in it. Lord, may it affect every single thing we do every day. We know we will never get there, but Lord, may we grow day after day in enjoying you, trusting you, obeying you in every part of life. Amen.